Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you novelist, playwright and actor Ashley Griffin, talking to the legendary Stephen Schwartz. Among numerous theatre works, Griffin's award-winning plays Trial and Snow have had successful off-Broadway runs, and her debut novel The Spindle is out now with a second novel, Blank Page, set for release in 2023. Schwartz has won numerous awards for his iconic musicals Godspell, Pippin and Wicked, and three Oscars for his music in the animated musical films Pocahontas and Prince of Egypt. He is also the author of a children's book, Perfect Peach. A must-listen for aspiring writers of any genre, Ashley and Stephen explore the commonalities of multiple artistic vocabularies, including adapting novels to theatre, pairing technique with the magical work of the unconscious, and finding confidence as the youngest creative person in the room. Inspiration starts now. So hi, Stephen. It's so good to see you again. And you. It's been a while. I was trying to recall when was the last time we saw one another. Um... The, the last time was I produced a concert produced and directed a concert at 54 Below that Michael McCory Rose was in. Right. And you very generously came to see it. So that's the last time I think we saw each other. And how many, what is that, like four years ago? That's a while, right? It was before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was about four years ago. Because actually Michael um, was doing some development with me on a on a play, and that came about through us meeting on the concert. Oh, so. cool. Yeah, uh, he's still doing years. a lot of that. Um, he's yeah. he was he was running down uh, the list of readings that and workshops <laughs> that he's doing, which he enjoys very much. So I'm yeah. I'm sure if uh, if that revives and you want him to work on it, um, I'm sure he would be very happy to do so. Oh, awesome! He's very talented, and I'm sure he's in great demand. And it's always a joy to get to work oh, with him. Oh, that's that's nice of you to say. I will pass that along to him. But speaking of the pandemic, it sounds yeah. as if um, you were able to be um, productive during it because you have a novel, which we're presumably going to talk about. Congratulations yeah. on that! And uh, thank you. Yeah, um, I. Anyone who was able to be productive during the pandemic, I have great admiration for because I found it quite challenging. Well, thank you. I I tend to be a bit prolific. I, I write a lot. Um, for me, the pandemic, I don't know. I, I love writing and I love doing this. And for me, it's sort of like the reward that I get when I get everything else done that I have to do. So I sort of looked at the pandemic as getting, I guess, what I've affectionately termed housekeeping done in terms of writing. So all of the all of the pieces that I hadn't really had time to delve into and all the things I needed to do rewrites on or some development, I'm like, great, I'm just going to get it all all done. So it led to that. But I know that the pandemic was also a very challenging time. And you've mentioned that it was the opposite for you. It was difficult for you to do some writing, which is completely understandable. Yeah, well, one of the discoveries that I made, and I'm actually glad to have made it, though I'm sorry I had to make it under such stressful circumstances yeah. for myself and for the world, um, was that I realized how much what I do and what I enjoy doing as a writer is based on collaboration. Yeah. And that when that 
uh, got removed because no one could be in the same room and there's only so much collaboration one can do over Zoom. Um, I, I found it very challenging. I, you know, I, I was going to say I envy you as a novelist and I don't really mean that, but, but I feel as if I discovered that I don't have a sort of novelist's sensibility in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, just um, spiriting myself away and doing writing that I like the whole group um, back and forth with whoever the book writer is or screenwriter for whatever piece I'm doing and the director and just the group energy I find um, inspiring and enjoyable. And when that was gone, uh, it was, I, I found it challenging. But as I say, it's a lesson I'm glad to have learned about myself because I find I have a greater appreciation now that we're able to do this again. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not taking it for granted in the way I think I might have been before the pandemic. It's in, it's interesting you say that because I I feel the same way you do. I mean, I'm I'm a theater girl and that's that's what I do and I had always sort of been interested in taking a stab at writing novels and seeing how that went. But people have asked me what the most challenging thing about writing a novel is and they sort of assume it's, you know, making your word count or how long it is or whatnot. And for me, it was all the ways that it's different from the theater world. Um, I mean, the cool thing about it is, you know, in a time when, like you said, you can't be in a room with other people and, you know, collaboration and being in a room with people is what I love so much about the theater. And it it's what I love about what I've chosen to do with my life. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice that I can just go in a room and write a book and I can do it completely on my own and so I can engage in a creative activity that I'm not dependent on, on others for. But that's what was really hard about it was all the ways it was different from theater. You don't have that collaboration. You ha have to and get to be everyone. You're all the actors and the director and the designer. Um, but then you're also creating something that is in a finished form and that's how it's going to exist forever. And then it's out in the world and that was kind of terrifying because, you know, theater is very much a living organism and you continue making adjustments and changes yeah. the for famous decades saying, on Yeah, it. the famous saying with musicals that musicals aren't so much written as rewritten. Yeah. But I, I have to assume that you obviously were making revisions on, on your novel. Did you have an editor that you were working with? Um, do you mind telling me more about how this all came about and, you know, how you you know, placed the novel, if you will, and who yeah. with anyone you worked with. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because I actually have two novels coming out. One came out in October and the second is due to come out next spring. They're not related to each other. It just so happened that they both found publishers at the same time. Um, so I'm, I'm a theater person first and foremost. I started performing professionally when I was five. And then, you know, I'm also a theater writer and I've written plays and musicals and all that. And the, the two pieces that I have, one is called The Spindle and the other is called Blank Page. Blank Page started its life as a pilot that's still out there. I still think it works very well as a pilot. Amazon's looked at it. And The Spindle was originally idea an idea I had as a play. And both of them, you know, sort of that the whole form follows function idea. The more I delved into them, the more I was like, you know, these these could work as novels 
really well. And I always want to challenge myself and was like, well, I'll take a stab at it. And if nothing else, it'll make me a better writer for other things. And so it started very sort of isolated alone with me reading a lot about writing novels and listening to a lot of what other people had to say. As it got more serious, I actually tapped into my theater community and, you know, you can't do a table read of a novel, which is very challenging. You can't even sit down and read it from beginning to end in one sitting, which was really scary for me to not be able to see the whole arc in one sitting, which you're used to as a theater writer. But it started with me getting beta readers and people that I really trusted that were in my theater world to very generously read it and give me feedback. Um, and then I did start working with editors, but the editors were more about the nitty gritty of the grammar and the punctuation and word count and things like that. So it was really me relying on the the opinions of the people that I know and trust and work with. I don't know if every writer does that as much as I did, but for me, collaboration is really important. So I tried to tap into that as much as possible. And then the other thing that I did is I recorded the audiobook. Um, I was going to ask you if there was, were an audiobook yet, and and that if, yeah. uh, that I hope that you did it. So I'm glad to hear that <laughs> Thank you, you. did it. Um, it's not out yet, but one of the things that was really important to me from my theater background was I was like, I want to record this audiobook before the book is out. A, because you know, you hear things in the dialogue and in the language and stuff when it's read out loud that you never do when you're staring at a page for 15 hours. And so I, I did that and I got to play all of the characters and through that, it was sort of like theater dramaturgy of like, oh, the, the arc isn't totally clear here. Or this word doesn't make sense. And it felt like I was taking all of my theater tools and applying it to a novel. That is the so best way that fascinating. I, I wonder if anyone else has ever done that, that you sort of rewrote doing the audiobook, and then presumably yeah. after you did your rewrites, you would re-record. Um, my mm -hmm. my daughter-in-law, my, my son Scott's wife, um, who has mm -hmm. this great speaking voice, her, her name is Julia Motika, she does yeah. a lot of audiobooks, um, but mm -hmm. of course they're finished books, and then she's right. hired to, um, you know, to read them, and she prepares, as I, I'm sure you did, uh, for yourself, all the character voices, and but but there's obviously no revision. Um, so I think right. that's such a fascinating idea that you used the process of recording the book to mm -hmm. make some of your your changes. That seems like uh, quite clever, and I wonder if you're the only one who's ever thought of it. Thank you. I don't I don't know. I mean, it was a big thing that I got away with it because normally they don't let you do it in that order, but it was a request that I had. And I don't know, it's one of the things that I like about sort of speaking multiple artistic vocabularies. You know, I'm a performer and a writer and all these different things. And being able to take all of those tools and apply them to whatever you're doing, I find to be really, really helpful. And, you know, we all know for the first time you do a table read of something, you're like, wow, I use that word a lot or, ooh, I left that word out of there. And I mean, just just doing that, I knew would be really helpful. So I'm, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to. I mean... You know, I, I will say it's a somewhat guilty confession that probably 75% of my reading now is audiobooks. Um, mm. I think more and more that's going to become popular. And I'm not even of the generation that, of you know, whom one would think that is true. Um, yeah. But when I have a lot of, when I have discretionary time, it's in my mm -hmm. car. 
And so yeah. I always have a book, usually a novel, but not always, but usually it's a novel that I'm listening to when I'm driving back and forth to the city. I will, nonfiction, I'm, I will tend to more, you know, read uh, mm -hmm. on a, you know, a hardcover. But, uh, but novels particularly I've been enjoying more and more as audiobooks. And so I think it's not surprising to me that you were encouraged to have the audiobook ready to go. Uh, in fact, I just ordered today an audiobook of something that I had read last week, reviewed oh, awesome. in the Times. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, the point being that it used to be a book came out and maybe a year or, you know, many months later, if it were, was doing well, then there'd be an audiobook and you had to wait for it. And now, mm -hmm. as soon as you read about the book, the audiobook is available, which I, of course, think is, is a great thing. Yeah. It's also nice, I'm sure you found, you know, being a writer, you're staring at a page so often that sometimes it's nice to have another sensory input when you're relaxing. Oh, for sure. to not have yeah. I mean, yeah. it's different for me because I'm, you know, I'm writing songs, so I'm playing mm -hmm. them and I'm singing them and I'm having to record them for people. And just right. as you say, um, you made discoveries as you were reading your own work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times when I have to record um, a song or I have to prepare the music so it's not just in my head, but actually could be played by someone else. Um, I make yeah. discoveries and changes then too. So, you know, it's, I guess there's somewhat a similarity of the process there. But um, tell me more about your, about the books. I, I know about the, the spindle, of course, and what, and what it's about. Um, I can't help but say that there is a little bit of a reminder to me of, you know, of Wicked, you know, my right. show Wicked, because once again, you're taking a very familiar story and spinning it and looking at it from the purported villain's point of view, which is, right. um, you know, such an interesting thing to do. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how this how this came to you? And just, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like uh, as if you've created an entire world, which is fascinating. Thank you. Well, it, what's interesting is there is now sort of a linking mythology that's happened through a lot of my work. And Wicked obviously means an enormous deal to me. So, I mean, there there is a similarity in the sense of just the surface of what you said, but it's a very different animal. It's not sort of exploring the nature of evil or trying to show that the dark fairy is was actually sort of good this whole time. Um, I've always been really obsessed with fairy tales since I was really young. Side note, I actually read Wicked when it first came out and I was a baby. I probably should not have been reading it. And I was like, this should be a musical. And then you did it. And I was like, yes. Um, so I, I was that like weird five-year-old in the library that was reading all the different interpretations and was reading Joseph Campbell and all these things. So I've always loved fairy tales. And the novel started as this germ of an idea when I was really little of noticing this big plot hole in Sleeping Beauty, which is if you go by fairy tale logic, the idea that everyone has one true love. Well, Sleeping Beauty's one true love wasn't born then until almost a hundred years after she, she was, which then I was like, well, wait a minute, then if the curse wasn't enacted, does that mean she would have to live her whole life without a true love? And if that's true, was the curse really a curse? 
So I just sort of, that was in the back of my mind whenever I read The Sleeping Beauty and it just sort of marinated. And then what ended up happening was I wrote a play called Snow that played off-Broadway that got some notoriety that that's a whole story in and of itself. It came out of the worst experience I ever had as a writer and sort of the first and only time that I was like, I don't know if I am good enough to be doing this. And I ended up getting back on the horse and completely rewriting the whole thing. And Snow is very much an adult piece, but it's about the importance and nature of storytelling. And sort of similarly to Cloud Atlas or The Hours, it um, it looks at the importance and power of storytelling through three disparate storylines. And one is the historically accurate account of how the Grimm brothers transcribed the stories. Um, a Victorian theatrical family, which was right around the time the stories were starting to be edited and easy morals put on them, and their lives start to resemble Snow White. And then a modern day girl living with her abusive mother who um, gets put into a coma and has to decide whether to wake up or not. Mm. And as part of this piece, um, one of the things that I linked through was this character named Shadow who was meant to be the ancient god or the ancient fairy of death. And I happened to write this mythology in it that all of the fairies, you know, if you really look at the mythology, were elemental spirits. And in sort of an American gods kind of way, as they've been forgotten, they've disappeared from the world. And Shadow is now the only one of his siblings left. And he's the only one that remembers the stories. And he's the only one that can try to get them to be remembered. And that kind of really caught on. And Shadow and the mythology around his siblings kind of became a thing. And I started, in, in creating the mythology around snow, I realized that it sort of linked to some things that I'd been playing around with with the Sleeping Beauty idea, that that was, would take place at sort of an Arthurian time when Christianity was sort of coming in and wiping out a lot of the pagan religions and the fairies and what that was. And so I sort of treated the spindle as a prequel to Snow in a way where the main character is Nor, which is a female incarnation of Shadow. And this is now at a part in history where most of their siblings are still alive, but they're in danger of being forgotten. And so it became this sort of prequel to Snow in a way. And then the Shadow character also ended up in blank page as well. So that's a very long-winded explanation for how the spindle came to be. And the spindle, the, the point of it is very much about there are things in this world that are bigger than ourselves. And when we try to make ourselves the god of the universe, things kind of go awry. And so that's, that's where that came from. And then blank page started its life um, when I was right out of college and I had this idea um, Blank Page takes place in an ethereal bookstore where all of the employees are fictional characters who haven't been written yet, and they have to live this purgatory-like existence tending to the literary canon until their author shows up to claim mm -hmm. them. And into this world comes a new um, employee named Page, who's the first character ever to not know anything about herself, and it causes all of the characters to start to question how much free will they have in their own lives and over their own stories. And it started as I'd had that idea and just sort of with a bunch of ragtag friends, we started developing it as a web series. And from there, I wrote it as a pilot that started getting some attention. And through having these meetings about the pilot, I was like, well, I'm creating the show Bible and I know what the whole, like what the first two seasons are. And it's a literary work anyway. I sort of feel like I want the whole, at least what the first season would be, the whole story to just be out there and exist 
whether or not this is made into a TV show, but it can also be something to sort of point to that I can have my version of it out there. And so I just decided to write it as a novel. And then it just so happens things start tying in. Shadow makes a cameo appearance. At one point, the characters who can go into the worlds of books go into the spindle to have a private conversation. So I now I now ended up having this whole mythology that sort of weaves through a lot of my work. But that's sort of a long-winded explanation of where both of them that came from. That sounds like a, a really fascinating idea. Um, I, I note, and it's interesting that you mentioned both uh Cloud Atlas and the and and the Hours, which are two of my favorite books, and mm. Cloud Atlas is kind of dazzling and it's brilliant. The brilliance it's of the structure, it's amazing. Um, but both yeah. of them um, have a lot to do with time, and mm -hmm. and um, you know they play with the the issue of time, and it sounds as if both your novels also do. I mean, obviously the spindle as you say, is, you know, is dealing with, well, is this person supposed to have been born at this time? And, um, you know, that whole concept comes up. And now it's, it sounds as if the, the blank page are people sort of suspended in time and will they ever yeah. have a time that's theirs? And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that that seems to be something thematic that is running through all three of your works actually that, that you that's about. so interesting that you say that and um thank you that that's amazing i think i think yeah i think that's something that i like to play with because i don't know for me stories are so universal and they link us throughout time i mean we've been telling the same stories forever and that that idea of how how we're linked together and how stories come to fruition um and those connections is something that really fascinates me, I think. We should mention quickly, and this is, this is circling all the way back, but both of us alluded to the novel Wicked on which the mm -hmm. musical is based. And I feel since we are authors talking about uh, writing that we should say the name of the author yes. of, of yes. the novel Wicked, which was Gregory Maguire. Gregory Maguire. Uh, who had what I thought when I first heard about the book was one of those genius ideas and I was yeah. fortunate enough to be able to take a ride on it. Absolutely. I actually, I also do theater journalism. I write for American Theater Magazine and for Onstage and I just, I actually just wrote an article talking about how, um, how I, the title of the, of the article was, um, mainstream media learned the wrong lessons from Wicked. Um, and the the idea that um, Gregory Maguire had the most genius idea, and but it wasn't just, I'm gonna talk about a character who wasn't really evil. It was, I'm gonna explore the nature of evil through this interesting story. And it now feels like the idea of, oh, we're just gonna say that the bad guy isn't the bad guy has become like a, just a real popular thing without sort of understanding maybe the genius of what he did and then what you did with the adaptation of it that I just I think took the story to a whole new level and was such such a smart probably the, the most intelligent adaptation I've ever seen oh thank you of source material I mean it, yeah. interestingly enough when uh, I first was in pursuit of the rights and mm -hmm. I wasn't at all sure that I was going to be able to secure them and and actually be allowed to do the show uh, along with my collaborator Winnie Holtzman um, yeah. I started thinking of other um, 
villains, other famous mm -hmm. villains, to think, well, what if, you know, what if I just sort of take this idea and yeah. do this particular story and right. indeed considered um, the Wicked Queen in Snow White, I considered mm -hmm. Iago, um, Judas, yeah. but I'd kind of already done that. Um, and I had a whole yeah. list of villains, but none of them spoke to me the way um, yeah. you know, the Wicked Witch of the, of the West did. I think because the Oz stories and the Wizard of Oz were so deeply ingrained in American culture, um, I just, no, nothing else really felt as compelling to me. So um, I don't yeah. know if I hadn't gotten the rights if I, if I would have picked one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something very unique and special about the Wicked Witch of the West. And McGuire has talked in interviews how he originally got the idea um, because I think he read some article about the, I think the Gulf War or something where somebody compared somebody to Hitler. Yeah, it's out of, and he yeah, had this, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he had this gut reaction of just that comparison. And I think originally he was thinking of writing something about Hitler and then he was like, no, 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 because that's real and that's really horrific, but what if we did a literary person? And it was just, it was brilliant. And then the way that you went on to adapt it was just so intelligent. Well, um, thank you for saying so. Yeah. I mean, Gregory, first of all, I want to acknowledge the generosity of Gregory mm -hmm. McGuire because sure. um, many people who have written a work that has had the success that Gregory's novel had become extremely protective of it. And without naming names, there have been other authors that I have approached about adapting mm -hmm. their work. And they wanted so much control over the adaptation yeah. that I finally said, well, this isn't worth it for me to do. Um, yeah. Gregory, on the other hand, was so generous, and mm -hmm. he basically said to Winnie and me, um, just do with this what you feel you want to do. Follow, follow you know, the things that are important to you thematically and from a story point of view. Um, I did that with the Baum work, and, you know, mm -hmm. so you have my blessing to do it with mine. And he, you know, along the way came to a reading and came to the previews and of course he had some thoughts but he yeah. didn't ask for any kind of control and therefore it allowed Winnie and me um, to pursue the the aspects of the story with which we were obsessed which yeah. were somewhat different than those that um, spoke most strongly to Gregory. Well the interesting thing though is I think I mean, I certainly wasn't there in the room, but for, from everything that I've gathered, you and Winnie really understood what the heart of the novel was, and that's what intrigued you in the first place, and you wanted to do justice to what the heart of it was, which is not always the case with people that are adapting things for a myriad of reasons. And one, one of the analogies that I like to use about writing when you're, when you're trying to figure out the best way to write something or adapt something or whatnot is it's it's almost like doing a crossword puzzle where the clue will never change and the clue is the heart of why you wanted to write something in the first place but within that clue there's a million and one words that could work you just have to find the one that fits within those spaces and what's already there and it seems like your heart really was let's take the things that we all care about about the story 
and then adapt them the best way we can for this medium and for what we do best and for what's interesting to us, as opposed to being like, cool, you had a good idea, and now we're just going to like do something that we think is going to be popular with it. Yeah, we and never, that, that, that was not a motivation for us. Um, right. You know, uh, um, we were really obsessed with the idea and the story, um, mm -hmm. and so much of what, as, as you've been talking about, what the, the philosophy and the politics yeah. and the cultural ideas that lay underneath this brilliant metaphor that Gregory found, um, yeah. you know. Um, but I do think that there were things that Gregory cared about dealing with um, and, and, and dealt with a lot in the novel that spoke less to Winnie and me than some other aspects, sure. which, um, which we developed more fully than were developed in the novel. Um, I, and yeah. again, um, you know, I, I will never cease being grateful for Gregory's generosity. Um, it, yeah, I actually, his agent was one of the people who looked at the spindle and that was, um, that, that was, he, he had some very kind words about it. And that was a huge thing for me to, <laughs> to have him look at it and, and say that about it. Here are two brief messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers. So you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type. And once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now, when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Buxton Books is proud to be a season sponsor of the Always Authors Podcast. Buxton Books is located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina on King Street. And we are a full-service, independent bookstore that also specializes in presenting one-of-a-kind literary events. Please come visit us in Charleston or online at buxtonbooks.com to purchase books and to receive our newsletter for information on events and booksellers' recommendations. We ship anywhere in the United States and internationally. Happy reading from Buxton Books. I'm interested to ask you if you, and, and you, you don't have to talk about this if you don't, want to, but you alluded earlier in our conversation to uh, when you were talking about the development of, of your play Snow to mm -hmm. a very difficult time and how yeah. things grew out of um, something that was very difficult. And mm -hmm. if you're willing to talk about it, because I think it may be illuminating to things that writers go through, um, sure. you know, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, of course. Um, so I, the, the first play that I wrote that I felt like 
oh, well, I know what my voice is as a writer, is my play Trial that is very near and dear to my heart. And Snow was the first play that I wrote after Trial. So I feel like I was still solidifying who I was as a writer and what my voice was and, and finding that. And Snow came out of a commission where I, I was originally commissioned to write a children's adaptation of Snow White. And the idea, which I still think would be a brilliant idea, was to do a site-specific production in Central Park where you start at Belvedere Castle and you run with snow into the woods, you end up at the Swiss Cottage, and then you go sit inside and then the whole thing, the rest of it play, takes sounds, place in the Swiss that does Cottage. That wonderful. Which I would, I still really want to do that. I think that could be really fun. Um, so I was gonna write that and then, but being so obsessed with fairy tales, I was like, okay, well, there's some issues I've always had with Snow White. How would, how would I write Snow White to be the most satisfying for me? So I did that, that's a whole other long story, and I ended up with a piece that it wasn't quite a children's show, it was dealing with some more, some deeper and more complex and darker things, but it really wasn't an adult show. And so we went in to have a reading of it. I was working with a director that had come highly recommended, but I had never worked with them before. And about two months before this reading was supposed to happen, I had a big introductory meeting and I was really upfront and honest and I said, look, this piece doesn't work the way it is now. My goal with this show is to figure out what it is and here are all the questions I have about it, here are all the things that I know are not working and the goal for the producers and me and whatnot is to use this development time to develop it and to figure it out and rehearse and answer these questions. And they were like, great, awesome, that's fantastic. And over the next couple of months, every single meeting, every single work session, every single rehearsal got canceled at the last minute. And so we ended up showing up the day of the reading, having never done any development or had any meetings. And by that point, I mean, I had had conversations about, I think we need a new director. This is really not okay. And everybody's like, no, no, it's fine. There was an emergency. We're going to have another meeting like next week. And it just it just kept sort of falling apart. This wasn't a big reading. It wasn't like for industry. It was an in-house private reading. But we got there the day of and we rehearsed it the day of and there was just enough time to basically stage it. And then we did it. And the things that weren't working about it still weren't working about it. And at the talk back, I kind of got thrown under the bus where the first question that came from an audience member about something that wasn't totally working um, the director sort of chimed in and basically was like, well, Ashley really hasn't figured that out and she really needs to fix this, that, and the other thing or whatnot. And um, it just sort of devolved into this horrible thing. But the weird part of it, because on the surface, it's like, cool, a reading wasn't great. There was a lot of writing on the wall. This wasn't the best person to be working with. Like, fine. But somehow something... <laughs> I hate to describe it this way, but almost spiritual and very emotional hit me during that. And I, I've always sort of felt like, sure, I don't do things perfectly as a writer. I make a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of things I need to fix. But in general, I feel like I'm pretty decent at what I do. I know what I want to get across. And if I work on it enough, I can usually get it there. There was something that hit me that day that was like, wow, is everything I think I'm doing just not happening? Is it not getting communicated? Am I crazy that like, am I just completely incompetent and I should never put pen to paper ever again? And 
I don't know what it was because rationally it doesn't totally make sense, but it was, it just hit me. And for the first time ever, I just felt wiped out and just utterly devastated. And like, do I need to rethink my life? And it was a really slow climb out of that. And, you know, like we said, I'm very prolific. I love writing. It's my fun activity that I can't wait to do. And it was the first time that like, I couldn't write and I didn't, I just didn't know what to do. And so what ended up happening was I, two things, I think very smartly, I immersed myself in a lot of work that I found edifying and inspiring and just, you know, let's not create right now, let's absorb. And I also met with other people in my community that I really trust and talked through it. Um, and through talking through it, I sort of started to figure out like, okay, what is the thing I really want to be exploring? Let me go. Here's my kitty Poppy. <laughs> Say hi. Oh, what a pretty one. Hi. Say hi. She's very pretty. She's very mean sometimes, oh, but well. she's very pretty. She can get away with it because she's so pretty. She's very pretty. Um, and so I was like, go and write the piece that you want to write. And I realized that I wanted to write about the importance and nature of storytelling. I sat down and I wrote that piece. I wrote another thing to fulfill my commission for the children's play. Um, but I wrote What Now Is Snow just because I was like, if I don't write a new version of this, I'm never going to get back on the horse. So I wrote it and like put it in a drawer. And then like a year later, somebody needed to do a reading and I was just telling them various things I had in a drawer. And they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. And we did a reading and everybody's like, oh, wow, there's, there's something here. And then it turned into this very successful piece. But there was something about that reading that just like hit me really hard. And it was the first and kind of only time that something's really hit me to that level. It's really interesting to hear you describe that. Interesting to me anyway, and yeah. perhaps to other writers who are, who are listening. Um, because I think yeah. that as writers, we all have to get over that crisis of mm -hmm. confidence or lack thereof and self doubt. Yeah. And all of us experience it, um, at some time and maybe more than one time where you yeah. suddenly think, am I just kidding myself? And do I have the right yeah. to do this? Um, mm -hmm. Because what you're writing is just coming out of you, number one. Yeah. Um, and number two, uh, I don't know if you feel this way, but how things actually get written remains extremely mysterious, um, yeah. at least to me. I, by now, because I've been doing it so long, I know what my process is. And I know that almost on every single song, shall we say, or every single thing that I'm doing, there are going to be moments where I hit a wall and suddenly mm -hmm. feel as if this is insoluble and I no longer know how to write and that's it. I've reached the end of the road. And, and then, of mm -hmm. course, one perseveres and breaks through and your unconscious does its magical work that one has yeah. no idea how it's doing that work. But, but my point is that so much of it comes from your unconscious and, and is not really within one's own control. Um, yeah. I think if you, you know, if, if you're building a bookshelf and you have, yeah finite materials and you have tools and it's all in front of you and you know how this gets made and even mm -hmm. if you are a great 
artist who carves things and makes things unique and beautiful, you still know how it's done, but writing remains so mysterious. I, I mean, mm -hmm. every single thing, every single song that I write, every single pro, um, project that I do, there are ideas and things that arrive and I have no idea where they've come from. I know how to generate the process by which I, that will happen frequently, right. not always, but frequently, but, but the actual production remains a mystery to me and consequently it's just riddled with self-doubt. Um, and so I think your, your story of a very specific thing that happened to you under very specific and unfortunate circumstances, nevertheless, is a universal story for writers um, who just face these, these questions from time to time and maybe in some way constantly. Yeah. It's one of the reasons that I do think that learning technique and learning how you work best is so important and it's something I don't see in a lot of writing programs um, like in colleges or whatnot is so much of it as you said is so mysterious that if you don't pair it with strong technique where you know okay these are the things I can do to help it or whatnot it's just it's such a mysterious thing um, so I think the pairing of it that's of technique really a with... smart thing that you're saying um, and I hope people listening who perhaps have writing programs hear this because I think you're yeah. absolutely right. We all develop our own process and maybe that's why it's not taught. Um, yeah. But I think how to find your process, how to work on the development of your process so that it becomes something you can repeat and repeat on demand, which is what makes one a professional. Um, yeah. That is something that I think that could could be worked on um, and advised and mentored and taught a little bit. And um, yeah. I think that's really smart of you to, to say that. I, I think that would be of great benefit to people who are in writing programs and are aspiring to become professional writers. Thank you. Well, it's, I, I mean, it's interesting. It's one of the things I love about doing so many different things because they, they feed each other. And, you know, when you're a dancer or when you're an actor or whatnot, like there, there are, there are, there are things that you can go to, to just lean on, to just get through and, and do the performance, you know, at a, at a high level, but maybe you're not feeling super inspired that day, but I don't see the same level of talking about those things as a writer, and one of the things that was so fascinating and a little scary at first to me of when I really started to, you know, have bigger breaks and was finding myself in rooms, you know, with big productions happening and very important people is it's not all about like, okay, you know, go, go away. And when the muse inspires you, maybe come back with a new scene or something. It's like, cool. So we have like a 10 minute break. This scene's not working. We need a new one by the end of the break. And if you don't have some technique to like lean into, you're not going to be able to get the job done. Um, yeah, you know, exactly like what you right. were saying about you. You learn. You yeah. you have to learn to do that. There's a story yeah. I was I heard. I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not, but it was about the novelist uh, Somerset Maugham, and mm -hmm. some woman 
came up to him at a party and was talking about the muse and asking about if he, you know, is that how he works, that he waits for the muse to speak to him and then out this doors yeah. and he said, absolutely. Fortunately, the muse comes at 9 a.m. every morning. <laughs> and That's great. it's great, but, you know, just the knowledge yeah. that he basically was a professional and yeah. he had his time that he started and did what he needed to do until um, inspiration struck. I, I, for me, there's an analogy that um, came to me and feels accurate as a metaphor, which is um, and one of those old fashioned water pumps that you mm-hmm. see on farms, you know, not that I've ever actually used one, but that, you know, it has this handle and you like have to work the handle and you do it for quite a long time and absolutely mm-hmm. nothing seems to be happening except your own yeah. exertion. And then yeah. after a while, there might be a little trickle of kind of dirty brown mm-hmm. water um, that is so discouraging that you might stop. But if you just keep doing the work, then the, then the actual water shows up but there's all this work that you have to be doing an exertion before you get any um actual yeah. a- actual thing that you can use that mm-hmm. you have to not only be willing to do but realize that's going to be required and that that's mm-hmm. just part of it yeah for sure and i i like that and i think I don't know. There's there's some form of a security in that where it gives you something active to do. Yeah. And I mean, it's so funny because, I mean, when, you know, when you write for characters, you're always thinking about, you know, what's their objective? What's their action? What are they actively doing? And I think it's so interesting to apply that to us as, you know, as human beings and also as artists. There's so much empowerment when you can be active in doing something. It's the reason I think there's that old chestnut of like on opening night writers, you know, pacing in the lobby or hiding in cupboards and stuff because there's nothing you if you're an actor on opening night you can perform your role and you can do that if you're a writer you can't do anything so if you have things of like great I'm gonna do this exercise or I'm just gonna write this scene 10 different ways or I'm gonna do this that and the other then it gets the as you're saying the pump flowing and then the magical part sort of starts to partner with you as you're doing it but it's interesting you say you know i i I think you may know this that i don't go to my own opening nights Um, Mm -hmm. for 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 years and years i've i've made that a policy that i just go away um and but i never really considered i thought it had to do with other issues but i never could really considered exactly what you're saying which is that feeling of complete helplessness that there's yeah because you can't can't do anything you're just stuck there yeah Yeah. oh yeah i mean opening nights are awful for everyone but at least as an actor you feel like you have some control like i'm gonna i'm gonna go out there and i'm gonna do x y and z as hard as i can when you're the director or the writer like you i remember so one of my first big breaks was i wrote a parody twilight musical that played at new world stages and it was meant to be this very tiny thing and somehow it got in national news coverage like Perez Hilton was writing about it and I was suddenly being interviewed by E Entertainment and um I mean I'm young now but I was a baby and I remember sitting there the night of the first performance sold out 
all these huge news crews there. I was the like the youngest person by far, like <laughs> that was involved in the creation of this. And I remember sitting there like we were about to take off on a roller coaster. I wasn't really sure I wanted to be on and thinking, I don't know if I'm ready to handle all this. And I don't really know if I even want to be sitting here right now. I kind of just want to like be home hiding because yeah, there's, there's nothing you can do if there's a line you suddenly realize is up too late now it's frozen um and yeah i think i think that a lot of it comes from you can't be active when exactly well whenever i see my own shows i'm you know people are like oh do you ever go and sit there and and just enjoy it <laughs> but i'm just taking notes I, I you know i say well i'm when i'm at a show of mine i'm i'm working I'm taking yeah. notes because there'll be things that have gone off or discoveries that can be passed yeah. on to the actress or the director. And, and in fact, um, and now you're sort of making me understand the oh. ecology behind it. I, when I went to the closing night of Godspell, the original production oh. of Godspell, and yeah. after it, and the show had been running eight years or something like that. And it had been in many yeah. different theaters and, you know, it was playing all over the world. And so I felt, all right, well, it's safe for me to go to the closing night. And oh no, it's the worst time. Well, but what happened time. was that um, after about 15 minutes, I took notes. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to sit in the theater and watch the show. And obviously I was taking notes that were of no use because there weren't going to be any more performances. And so at the end of the performance, on my way backstage to thank everybody, I threw the notes away. But the way that I got through it was yeah. to actually take notes during the performance. Yeah. Well, and actually that makes me think of something I wish that more people understood, especially early in their career, is that there's no such thing truly as a finished piece. And I think I, I think back to when I was a kid doing shows and, you know, you're doing like West Side Story or whatnot. And it's presented to you as like, this is like a holy text. If you have a problem with anything, you have a problem because this is perfect. And so you start to learn whether you're a performer or a writer or whatnot, that there will come a point when the text will become almost holy and it is perfect. And if there's an issue, it's it's your problem. And one of the things that I love discovering was like, that's absolutely not true. Everything is living and breathing. And when revivals happen, you know, writers and composers make changes. And the more that you can go into things realizing that everything is living and breathing and so let's collaborate on it, I think it's freeing for everyone because I found it challenging sometimes when actors don't want to speak up in rehearsal at all because, and the, the, the number of actors that have articulated to me like, oh no, I just, this line isn't making sense to me, but don't worry, it's my problem, I'll figure it out. And it's like, oh no, great, tell me what's not making sense about it because I can do, oh no, no, you don't have to do something to accommodate me, like, I'll figure it out. And it's like, no, let's make this like hot couture and let's make this specific for you and there'll be a revival and something will be different because of who's playing it. And um, the fact that things are living and breathing and you never get to a point where it's like, yes, this is perfect. And that's what's great about live theater is that you can, yeah. you can always change it when you have a, a new idea. I think Stephen Sondheim sort of famously said that musicals are never completed. They're just abandoned. But yeah. at a certain point, <laughs> you know, everybody just has to walk away because the show has opened and now it's running and yeah. you're 
you you can't you know be constantly futzing with it. And I, I will say contrarily that I do know when something is finished, even though I know it's yeah. not, which is different than knowing that something is perfect. I, right. I, yeah. I do know where, when it's like, okay, this is, this is working now. You can feel that yeah. it's working and there are moments that you never quite got right, or you wish you'd figured out a way to make them better, but it's basically working. And, yeah. and then it feels finished. And that doesn't mean that three years from that point, you're not suddenly going right. to think, Oh, I know how to make this a little bit better. And then you do, but, yeah. um, you know, it's different than when something's in process and you, and you know, you haven't gotten there yet. And, right. and I think that is something that one learns how to, um, how to identify. Yeah. Do you find that, um, as, as you get older and the more shows that you do, that that process gets faster for you than it used to? Um, which one? <laughs> of, of, figuring, of figuring out how to solve problems with a piece and getting it to a place where it feels finished? Or is every work just completely yeah, new and different? And faster, it's... actually, yeah. to, to be honest. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'm much more... Um, confident in and aware of my process but mm -hmm. and and I also have come to be a better collaborator to to yeah. know how to collaborate and when to um, stick to one's guns or say yeah. to your collaborators listen I know you're questioning this but I feel really strongly about it let's just live with it for a while and then it's such a difficult balance. A, a really, or when to hear what's being said, and yeah, the, and just that whole process, which I, which I, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, I've discovered is the thing I most enjoy and is most important mm -hmm. to me. But um, it's something that one really has to learn how to do, and I think I have gotten better at that. But mm -hmm. I, I don't know, you know, things take the time they take. I think what's changed for me is that I'm not impatient about it anymore. And I don't get scared. I don't need something yeah. to be perfect right away. I don't need the first draft of a song to be completely right or feel mm -hmm. that it's a disaster. Um, you know, yeah. I know that discoveries are going to be made as, as I go forward. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm sort of telling these, uh, quotes and things that, that I heard and ascribing them to people that I don't even know if that's accurate, <laughs> but uh, someone told me that E.L. Doctorow said about writing a novel, he said, it's like driving in a thick fog. He mm -hmm. said, you kind of know where the destination is when you start, but you can't see it. All you could see is about 10 feet in front of you. So mm -hmm. you go that far. And then you can see the next 10 feet and then you go that far. And, and I think, uh, and that, that feels very accurate to me. And by that, I don't mean yeah. like you're starting at the beginning and getting the first, you know, five minutes and then the next five minutes, because it, it can, particularly with shows, um, you know, and musical shows, one isn't necessarily writing in a linear fashion from beginning to end. In fact, I don't think I've ever done a show um, where mm -hmm. that was the case, but 
but there is that feeling of like I know this much but a lot of it is just hazy and misty and seen through a glass darkly then you get a little yeah. you get through that first section and then you can see a little bit more and gradually you discover it and eventually you arrive at a destination which is if you're lucky more or less where you were trying to get in the first place yeah um you know, I've always wanted to ask you, one One of the things that I think has been a little bit similar about our trajectories is that we both started having success when we were pretty young. And something that I feel has been, I'm just now realizing has been a lot of my identity is always or usually being the youngest person in the room. You know, I did my first professional show when I was five. There have been a lot of times I'm directing a show where I'm the writer and I'm by far the youngest person. And, you know, you started having a lot of enormous success when you were very young. Did there ever come a moment for you where you started to, like, whether you were or not, but feel like, okay, I'm not, I'm not the baby in the room anymore. I don't feel like I need to prove myself quite as much. Um, I feel like I can sit in this sort of authority that I don't constantly have to be proving because of yeah, maybe, maybe what it looked like. Or I mean, yes. I mean, the, the short answer is yes, but I feel as if I went from being the youngest person in the room to being the oldest person in the room. Mm. I, I never really can. I mean, <laughs> I know that can't actually be true, that there must have been yeah. many years when like people were, I was sort of in the middle, but it doesn't feel to me that way that yeah. for a long time I was the youngest person in the room. And then all of a sudden, everybody was younger than me. Um, oh, wow. and, and which isn't a bad thing, by the way. But I did mm -hmm. find and maybe I'm interested if you've, if you are having this experience, that yeah. um, I sort of had to catch up to my own success, if you know what I mean, that I, yeah. that I didn't actually know what I was doing. Um, I was going yeah. a lot on instinct and um, a lot on, you know, just riding on whatever talent I had and mm -hmm. the circumstance, but I was really, uh, I didn't really know how to harness that and, and you know, things you, we were saying earlier about having the, the technique to get through tough times and yeah. it was, it, it took me quite a long time to be able to catch up to that. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. And that's the first time I've heard something really articulated that I feel is very similar to my experience. I feel like I'm now getting in a groove of confidence with my process and all that. But yeah, it was it was a lot of, for, I think, in a way, kind of plain pretend. And the thing I think that I had that I'm so fortunate for was I had you as a mentor. I had some extraordinary mentors and I made myself a promise very early on that I was really going to listen to what was said to me. And for example, one of the things that you and I talked about the very first time we ever met was about collaboration and about when, you know, you try something and finding that balance of when, you know, you hold your ground and when you try something. And so the the first big thing that I sort of went into was, and it was because of you, I started working with the director, Gabriel Berry, who's now a very, very yeah, close friend and collaborator of mine. And so talented. I, I adore him. I, I like to say that I went to the Gabriel Berry Graduate School of Writing and Directing. And when we first started working, I was like a day out of college. Um, and 
he treated me like an equal for moment one and we would talk about the show and we would talk about the challenges and I was sort of sitting there waiting for this brilliant person to like tell me what I should do and then I'd go back and make the changes and bring it in and I remember he would always finish with like wow these are such great things that we talked about I am so excited to see the solutions that you find to them Mm. and I was just like what (laughs) what oh no and then I was like okay no you have to rise to the challenge and you can't act like an insecure kid if they're putting this trust in you you've got to rise to it and I remember with um, Twilight which was sort of the first huge show that I wrote um, there were people in the cast that I'd admired my whole life and I was sitting there kind of starstruck and um, I, I don't think he'll mind me telling the story but Jeffrey Denman was one of them and I I mean I stage doored Jeffrey mm-hmm. Denman And he came up to me one day with a question about his song. Um, I think it was about the key or something like that. And fortunately, I didn't say this, but my gut reaction was like, whatever you want, you're Jeffrey Denman. Whatever you want to do is fine. And fortunately, I had a moment of like, no, hold on. You are technically his boss and he is an artist that is coming to you for help. So you can either, you know, act like a fangirl or you can rise to that and even if you don't feel it you can pretend that you know you have authority in this situation and you can help an actor that is coming to you for help and I'm, i feel very fortunate that that's what i chose to do in that situation but yeah it was those it was those experiences of sort of kind of plain pretend about it and coming in with a confidence i didn't always necessarily feel that i think allowed me to develop that and live in that more organically and holistically as time went on i I really appreciate it's very meaningful to me that you cite me as one of the people who was able to help you you know find confidence and and find your way i mean i uh I, I did I never really had mentors you know my brief time um, that I worked with Leonard Bernstein I'd learned just so much from him and so I guess he was the closest I ever had but it was a you know three month period um, yeah. and mostly I just felt a little bit like I had been thrown into the deep end and that there were a lot of sharks yeah. in the water and I just had to figure out how to swim and survive and some of it was you know um pretending and some of it was maybe you know some misplaced um arrogance or or just having to use that in order for mm-hmm. as as a measure of self-defense etc um yeah. and so when i did sort of become the oldest person in the room um yeah. it became very important to me when i would meet people such as yourself who obviously mm-hmm. had great talent but also we're just starting to try to say, you know, here are some pitfalls that I wish someone had told me not to fall into. And here are some things I've learned along the way that if I'd known them when I started might have made that journey a little easier. And to the extent mm-hmm. that anyone can impart anything to anyone else, here's you know, here's what I can tell you for what it's worth. And the fact that it was helpful to you um, is enormously uh, meaningful to me. So thank you for saying that. Well, of course. Well, I mean, no, I have to tell you, I mean, you, you, (laughs) even before I knew you, you've been a figure that has changed my life in a lot of enormous ways. And I mean, the first day that we met, 
just the fact that you answered an email and the fact that you took time to sit and talk with me, I can't tell you what that did. I mean, just the, the times after that, when I would think, you know, Stephen Schwartz thought I was worth some time to sit down and have a conversation with. You can, you can have some confidence in what you're doing. And the things that you shared with me really, really affected from the moment that I went into the professional world, the way I responded to things. I mean, our, our conversation about collaboration and when you put your foot down and when you don't and how you know that. After that conversation, I made, I made myself a promise that I'm like, okay, if you go into a situation and you're working with people that you trust, you're going to make yourself a promise that you will try anything once. Just trust the person, try anything once, and we'll see how it goes. And that I, I was able to put that into effect very quickly when I started working with Gabe. And I remember one day he, he made a suggestion. There was a song in the show that I loved. It was my favorite song. And he was like, you know, I know it's a great song. I know you really love it. I don't know if it's really working. And I was like, okay. And he told me why. And I left and I sat in Central Park and I cried for like a half an hour. And then I went home and I kept my promise. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to abandon this good advice that I was given. And I took the song out and did a new draft. I brought it back and Gabe said, actually, I really missed the song. I think I was wrong. I think we need it back in. And I then had this revelation of like, oh, wait, I can put it back. You can take things out and you can put I'm it back. I'm so glad you've just said that out loud because I, <laughs> yeah. I tell that to people all the time. And for young writers, it's really hard for them grasp that and that's why they they are so precious and desperate yeah. with things and i'm like you can always retreat it's not yeah. an etch-a-sketch where yeah. you shake it up and you can never get back what you had it's sitting there you know on your computer in your on, on your desk you know if you try right. something and it's a cul-de-sac and you've gone down the wrong road you could always retreat and go back yeah. to what you had um, yeah. But you'll go back to it informed by what you've learned from going the wrong way. So, yeah. Um, but pe yeah, that is a really good lesson to learn and, and good thing to hear, I think, for people. Yeah. And the other thing that you said, which whenever anybody asks me for advice, this is what I tell them, and I always credit you with it. But you said, um, the more... Um, the more personal something is, the more universal it becomes, which has held me in very good stead. And you also said, um, trust yourself, please yourself, but be hard on yourself. And that has held me in very good stead too. I remember one of my very early shows, I did a rewrite of it um, that was taking everybody's feedback into account. Everybody, these were people that, you know, I were important people, took all of it into account, did a table read of it. And I was like, I am so bored. There is nothing that I'm looking forward to in this show. And thought about your advice and was like, well, no, what I what I have to say and what I feel about it matters too, but I need to be harder on myself than anybody else will be. And and all of that and just seeing you as an example and the wonderful work you've done and your generosity of spirit. I mean, when Twilight started happening, I was I was in over my head. I, I had no representation. I'd never been at the center of something that big. And I was like, I hope I'm not abusing this, but I don't know who else to write to. And I sent you a message and I was like, this is a little overwhelmed. And you, you wrote back to me. I joined the Dramatist Guild because of you. Um, and you 
I wouldn't know and have worked with Gabriel Barry if it wasn't for you. Um, you've you've changed the course of my life in a lot of ways and you've been extremely meaningful and it's one of the just things in my life that matters so much and thank you for oh, that because really, thank you for saying that as i said it's very meaningful to me and uh, you know i look at what you've accomplished uh, you know already and um you know these these two books one that's there and very exciting and one that's about to be there and sounds um, like another fantastic idea and maybe we'll we'll sort of wrap up by um, we, we've sort of thanked and congratulated one another but um, yeah. I do feel we uh, touched on some very significant um, issues that uh, if I were yeah. a young writer hearing this it would be um, illuminating for me and so um, thank you for having uh, this mm -hmm. conversation with me um, Thank you. My goodness, it's a huge honor. Um, and and uh, you know, again, congratulations and and all the best with the. Uh, Thank you, and you as well. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, Bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers.